When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Orlando Murrin. In this episode, I'm speaking to Trina Harneman about her favourite dish. Trina has come all the way from Copenhagen to be with us today. Please tell us a bit about yourself, Trina, because I know you as the goddess of Scandinavian cooking, but I don't know much about your background. I'm a chef, um, not a trained one. I kind of taught myself, but I've been working as a chef for 30 years, so I've had several companies in Copenhagen. And I've been writing books and I've been advocating a lot for organic food and sustainable solutions in Denmark for many, many years. So I'm a bit of a free things, like a chef. I'm a food writer and I'm also an activist. Now you have a bakery. Is that a bakery, cafe bakery or, yeah. or a restaurant? It's a, I call it a cafe eatery cooking school. So it's like a bit of both, but... It is also a cafe, but I, you're a busy, busy lady. I would oh, say. yeah, yeah. But I have, I have an amazing team working with me, so I'm not alone. Are they Danish or team or international? No, they are from all over the world. But I would say half, fifty percent are Danes, and the others are from all kinds of countries from around the world. Fantastic. Now I have to say that your beautiful book, Scandinavian Baking. I was coming up on the train to do this podcast. I haven't come from as far as Denmark. And I had the book out and I was looking at it with great enjoyment. And I set it aside. And the person sitting next to me who I didn't know said, well, may I take a look at that? She spent the rest of the two-hour journey absolutely glued to your book. And at the end, she actually tried to buy it off me. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, wonderful. I couldn't get it out of her hands. <laughs> She, yeah. ab- she absolutely loved it, and I loved it. So so this is Scandinavian baking, and it has the most beautiful pictures of the most delicious food in it, um, all beautifully explained. I, I haven't actually experimented with making them yet, but I can't wait. And you have a Scandinavian green book out, and then another, no doubt, on the way. Yes, I'm writing a book called Simply Scandinavian, which is about the easy way of cooking, because that's one of the really big things about Scandinavian food is... There's not a lot of ingredients. It is simple. 
you know, because normally we don't use a lot of spices. We do use spices, but we use like one. So we use nutmeg and salt and pepper. <laughs> and then four, four, three or four other ingredients. So, so it is a very uh, easy and ki- kind of simple way of cooking. So what is the... the the home cooking, is there a way to describe it simply for people who don't know about it? Because we watch um, Scandi Noirs on television yeah. and they we obviously see that they enjoy their food occasionally. <laughs> yeah. But but what's actually going on in, in your Scandinavian homes? I think that you, you have a, a slightly unusual family background yes, in that you were brought up <laughs> in a commune. Yes. Is that the word for it? Yes. Yeah, my parents were like 60s hippies trying to change the world. So I was part of that. But I also spent a lot of time with my grandparents, which we call Momo and Morfa. And Momo, 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 Momo Morfa. So Momo is my grandmother and Momo, uh, I spent a lot of time with her. So I, she taught me basically to cook without me knowing it because that was what she did all day, you know, planning all the meals, looking forward, what was next. And I would say the the core of of the Scandinavian way is is very seasonal. We still eat really, really seasonal. And that means right now, cabbage and root vegetables, lots of potatoes. And of course, there's also kind of a meat-heavy side to it, minced meat, lots of pork. And But it is still, in a modernized way, there's a lot of, you know, emphasis on cabbage and cooking it, you know, boiling it, steaming it, uh, frying it, baking it, and then using and then eating it in all kinds of ways. Is that because cabbage is such a good crop in, in Denmark? Yes, because it goes, it, it goes really well in countries where, they are, where it's cold. You know, it, it became, you know, like kale. It will, you know, the, the flavor will be bigger if there's some frost. Yeah. So, but we have like... Sweetens it, doesn't it? Sweetens it, it and then the softens up, you know. Yeah. But we have kale, we have the cardinero that we call black cabbage. We have white cabbage, red cabbage, pointed cabbage, Brussels sprouts. I mean, we have so many different kinds that are available and then that we eat. And fish, I imagine, because of the shape of Denmark. Do you lots of fish? I'm really sorry to say that we used to eat a lot of fish, but it's not going that well. We export most of our fish. We do. We are. We have a lot of traditional dishes with fish, but it's not as popular. The government have even, you know, paid for really big campaigns to make the Danes eat more fish because it's so healthy. And what about the Scandinavian baking tradition? Yeah. Where does that come from? It comes from the that we are a dairy country, like we are farm, you know, farmers. We have really good soil. And therefore, Denmark, uh, over the last couple of hundred years, has really, really developed into being very efficient, very well-run farmed. And if you look at it back in the mid 1800 the farmers were some of the first in Denmark to be independent of the, you could say, the royals, the, fam- the, the people who owned the land, uh, and they created co-ops. And then, you know, every small town would have a dairy, and they would go together and there was access to egg, butter, milk, lots of, you know, that made it easy. And you also, on the farms, you had staff, which meant you could bake. You had hands to do it. And, and you know, if you have a diet where you don't get so much meat as we do today, you didn't eat like that um, 150, 200 years ago because you couldn't afford it, no matter what. So having cake, you know, having bread, having these things as well on the farm. So it comes from that. And the sugar and the spices were they they were traded? Yes. Was is there a trade route between yes. Denmark and the East? Yes, there is. And but before you know, if we go even back to the f- 
you know, 1400, 1500, we had all the herrings in the Baltic Sea. And the Dutch, they came, uh, you know, to the shores of the Baltic Sea and, you know, fished out the herrings and they would trade it to Krakow and, you know, Amsterdam and all the spices would go forth and back between that. Yeah. Fantastic. And we, you know, I've even, you know, I studied old cookbooks and, and one of the things that I found out was to look at how the estates they bought their produce in the 15, 16 hundred. That was a way to understand. And, you know, they got asparagus from Germany. They got peaches from Italy. I have no idea how they got all the way up here. But they had access because they were rich. Well, there were food miles even then. Yes. <laughs> so in your in the commune in which you were brought up, was yeah. how was the food there? The food was amazing. I mean, I always say that my parents, they, uh, they kind of, you know, they uprooted everything, the idea of a family, idea of how you live together, idea of education, you know, to try to create another world. But one thing they didn't uproot was dinner. Every time, every day, everybody would get around for dinner. So some grown-ups would gather in the kitchen around 6 p.m. and start cooking, and I would always be there because I did not know every day if I was going to go to school, but I knew there was going to be dinner. <laughs> and so I was very interested in that. And the dinner was very influential. The, the, the cooking was very influenced by the people who lived there. And we had refugees from, you know, like from Latin America and from, we had, we also had Palestinians living with us. So I always say I was one of the first children in Denmark to eat hummus. So I grew up with, you know, beans and rice and lots of influences from around the world. And just to be nosy and inquisitive, because that's what I'm like, what was like life like other apart from that in the commune? I, I, I've never lived in a commune. Was it like awful for a child or no, great fun? No. Or... It, was, it, was, it was chaotic, but it was also amazing because you had this idea that, that, the, that the child was counted as an individual and your creativity and your ideas were were taking in to the whole kind of conversation about what is going on and were you properly educated while you were running around barefoot and um, i mean that depends on what you mean by that <laughs> i i was taught to cook and uh, and you know mend my own uh, clothing and lots of political things and reading came much later to me <laughs> i think i was like in third or fourth grade before I could read. Uh, mathematics? Arithmetic? I became really good at math because I need, I don't know, somehow I understood when I went, I went to a school that was really also created like by the hippie commune in Denmark. And I went in, for, in third grade, I, meant I went to a normal Danish, you know, school. I think, I know you don't call it, what do you call it? State school. Well, state, state school, school. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. We mostly have that in Denmark. So I went to a state school, and because I couldn't read, they put me in a special class, and because they thought it was, and they were treating me a little bit like I was, there was something wrong. So I thought I better be good at something because I knew there was nothing wrong. So I became really good at math. I met someone whose children are currently being educated in an outdoor school. Yes. Have you heard of these? Yeah. We do, have, do you have outdoor schools in, in Denmark? We don't have schools. We have a, some part outdoor, but we have, uh, we have kindergartens outdoor all day. But I will say there's a Danish saying, and it is there's no, there's no such thing as bad weather, only wrong clothing. <laughs> well, yeah, wouldn't, find, wouldn't find me learning something, <laughs> however well clothed I was. I, yeah, but it's these kindergarten outside where there's, you know, it's amazing. 
your grandmother, more, 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 say it again. More, more. I love that. I can't even pretend to pronounce that. She had a tiny beach house, yes. I believe. Um, what on the on the beaches of Jutland somewhere? No, in a little island in the middle of Denmark called Fyn, which is the most beautiful place on the planet. It's if you a, ask me, it sounds very romantic. <laughs> it what, is. Does, does it have ele- electricity and gas? Yeah, yeah. Or mod yeah, yeah. It had, it had, it had a, you know gas in a bottle and, and downstairs, but it also had electricity. My my grand my morfa had that put into the house at. I probably would think in the 60s. But when they bought it, they, it didn't have electricity. Um, and log fires? You can see I'm all very no. worried about keeping warm. No. How did you keep warm? We the, didn't. We'd never You go, didn't keep warm? <laughs> no, we didn't go there in the winter. Right. It was boarded up in April, and then we would, and we would be there until, like, October. And then it was, again, boarded up, and you wouldn't go all through the winter. It was on the beach. Now, we must get onto your favourite dish because I've got so sidetracked with the fascination of your life. Your favourite dish, will you tell us about this? Because it's got a slightly unusual name. So it's a classic roasted chicken. Roasted chicken with sweet and sour cucumber salad and a separated sauce. And if I would say that in in Danish, it would be grydestek kylling med gurksalat or skilt sauce. Of course it would. (laughs) Um... Everyone wants to know about the separated gravy. So separated separated sauce or separated gravy. What are we talking about here, Trina? Is that an accident that has happened or what? No, I. this is just, I think this is how you would do it at home because, you know, it's not fancy. You just have all this nice fat and juice running off the chicken when you're roasting in the big pot. So it's the, and you get the layer of fat on the top of lovely buttery chicken yeah, juices. Yeah, and you take the chicken out. And you get up. the stock, and, stock underneath. Yeah. yeah, and then you, chicken, you take the chicken out of the pot to cut it. And then you add a little bit of cream and season it and that's it. And then do you whisk it to bring it back together again before you serve it, or not? Not you worry. do that. Is it... Yeah, you do that. But why it's sitting, you know, in, in a in a little serving, whatever you call that for the sauce, uh, uh, gravy, gravy boat, yep, yeah, yep. sauce can in Danish. Yes, <laughs> you would have a little, you know, thing in it, and then before you pour it over your potatoes, you just do like this and pour it over. Uh, so it's basically uh, chicken juices, chicken fat, and cream yes. and seasoning. Yeah. Salt and pepper. Excellent. Very, very simple. Is your chicken dish the sort of thing that you would enjoy for Sunday lunch in Denmark? We don't really have Sunday lunch. We are more into Saturday. So you have the open sandwiches for Saturday lunch and then you have a dinner with you know, with guests. Um, Saturday evening is a special one. Sunday is more relaxed and you go for a walk and you have coffee and cake in the afternoon. Right. BBC Good Food is doing a campaign to save Sunday lunch, to try and get everyone together. But it sounds to me like in Denmark you're doing it on Saturday. Yes, we have it on Saturday and we do the the traditional open sandwiches that we cook the smørbrød. Now this this dish uh, is this a family a family recipe? No, this is this it this is my family recipe, but this is also a traditional you could say national dish. It's cooked all over Denmark. Would everyone know this dish? Yeah. And Tell me about the cucumber salad because you 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 grow cucumbers in the summer yeah. and and do they keep well into the winter is no. it, or you just say so this no. is a summer dish effectively When I grew up we only had cucumbers in the summer so this is this was you know but we, this cucumber salad we had almost every day And you're pickling the cucumber lightly is Yes so you t- you take like a vinegar 5% not a malt vinegar not apple you know like a clear vinegar about 5% and then you add a little water and then you add and then you whisk in the sugar 
You don't boil it. You do, in other you're in not other cuisines, syrup. no, yeah. you're not making a syrup. You whisk it. Yeah. And uh, until, and then when the and my mom would also put uh, one or two cloves into it, so that would uh, you give it a little bit of spice, and then you would whisk it and whisk it until the sugar has dissolved, and then you put the cucumber in for like half an hour, an hour before serving, and then you take them out of the brine and and put them in a bowl separately and serve them, and then you can reuse that brine for the whole week. Yeah. And then every day you would put the fresh cucumber in just before eating. Because you one thinks of pickling as being a kind of Danish flavor. Yes. Do you you pickle oh, is yeah. there a pickle with every meal of some kind? There used to be, yeah. More or less. I was also surprised that you mentioned Worcester sauce at one point. Is that a favorite? <laughs> I thought that was an English thing. It is. And I have really been trying to figure out how, how did that start? But we have this leftover dish called bixamel, which just means like mixed up all kinds of uh, leftovers, but primarily potatoes and meat. And then you an onion and you fry that in butter or pork fat. And then in the end, you put the Worcester sauce in and then you eat it with a fried egg. And this is something that I think my mom would do, like she would save things for it and we would have it like every every second week. It's a sort of hashy thing yes, in a way. Yeah. And I do put Worcester sauce on, on hash as well. I wonder if it was um, sort of, and it's anchovies, isn't it? It's anchovies yeah. and tamarind, I yeah. think. I wonder if you had your own version of it or no. whether it, it, came, it came from Worcestershire. I've never seen anything other than that bottle. We must find the yeah. uh, the th- that food journey from <laughs> yes. Worcestershire to Copenhagen <laughs> yes. would be a, a very interesting one. Yeah. Um, now, what are the really important things about this dish? Um, what, what do we need to shop for with great care? A really nice big chicken. How do you spot a good chicken? I mean, it has to it has to look, you know, powerful. Does that make sense? Like. Big and juicy, and not flabby. Yeah, like they, you know, when when we had this dish when I was growing up, my my mom would go to the butcher and pick out a chicken, and it would be a proper big one, a bruiser of a chicken, yeah, a, being the farmyard bully. Yeah, and also it would cook for a long time because it it wasn't as soft as we know it today. It was tougher, but it also had much more flavor, and the meat wasn't as white. So I'm thinking, you know. This is a celebrate, you know, this is for celebration, this dish, I think. And so go to the butcher, talk to them, get a really nice chicken. And you would have an organic one. But, yeah. But your your restaurant is organic. Yes. Is that right? It's certified uh, organics. Are there many organic restaurants in Copenhagen? Because it's something that's been very hard to establish in Britain. They found it very hard to get organic restaurants off the ground. I think. Most bakeries, like artisan bakeries in Copenhagen, a lot of them work with organic produce. They don't necessarily have the certification. In Denmark, you can get a, a restaurant certification called Gold. That means you're between 90 and 100% organic. I don't think enough. They do produce, but if we if we if we look into the more you know the more public meals like kindergartens, elderly homes, hospitals, and in that whole area, um, a lot of uh, cities and 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 big towns around Denmark. Uh, have the 100% um, certification on all their meals. Gosh, amazing. Yeah. They're the kind of opposite that you would expect to to have yeah. organic certification, aren't they? Yeah. Because we think of it as a, a luxury rather yeah. than as something important to health. I think the whole idea that the public meal should be organic has been a really big driver for the organic movement in Denmark and made it possible for farmers 
to you know have somewhere where they could sell their products. So organic is really big. You mentioned also in your recipe, which you'll be reading out for our bonus podcast, curly parsley. Yes. Now, curly parsley has got a very bad name in this country. It's thought to be kind of weird and old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. I love curly parsley, but what what do you what do you what do you love about curly parsley? But it has a completely different flavour, and you know, f- flat leaf parsley. I I don't think I saw it until I was like twenty. I think <laughs> I maybe I you know when I was young, I moved to New York. Maybe that was where I saw it for the first time. We always only had the curly one. So for me, and that, it has a very green and a bit of earthy and a bit of de- bitter taste. So when you stuff the chicken with it, it's that flavor. It will never have the same flavor with the flat leaves. The flat leaf is, is more fresh and less bitter when you cook it. So for, for things where it has to have that hearty kind of, you know, underlining flavors that you want, the curly parsley is the one to use, I think. Fantastic. Well, we I've never established what the difference is. I've never kind of worked it out. I do know that when you're chopping them, if you're chopping them by hand, the curly yeah. parsley is easier to get a more bouffant yeah. kind of joyous yes. texture, yeah. whereas the flat tends to mash rather on the yeah. board, doesn't it? We also have a, a white sauce where you really add a lot of parsley so it almost becomes green and it has to be freshly chopped. And it also has to be the curly ones because you can't get the flavor out in the same way as with the flat leaf. Um, And you also specify three bay leaves. People are very timid with bay leaves. Do you use bay leaves a lot in Danish? Uh, Fresh bay leaves or? Both, dried or fresh. You know, I would say bay leaves, cloves and nutmeg are the three biggest spices in Danish cooking. Cloves are rather divisive. Do you find that some people in Denmark don't like cloves because you get a lot of people grizzling about cloves in bread sauce in this country. Oh, don't like the taste of cloves. Don't yeah, like bread no, sauce. No, we have, for Christmas, we have some res- very traditional recipes where they have to be in. And um, no, the thing is with cloves, you need to, if you're making like like some of these recipes for Christmas, which is like sweet and sour red cabbage, you put it into the onion and then you cook the onion so you can take them out. Because the problem with a clove is if, if it stays in the, red cabbage for a week or two because it can keep that long. The cloves, you know, continue to give flavor. You need to take it out. Yeah. So you measure it like that. But of course, too many cloves, it's, it is overpowering. It can be a bit dental, yeah, can't it? Yeah, it is like, dental. Like a dentist. <laughs> but something I learned from um, Chef Tom Kerridge, who yes. does a lot of our podcasts, is he uses nutmeg very generously. And um, he said, oh, put in half a nutmeg. Yeah. I said, do you mean do you mean like half a pinch of nutmeg? He said, no, half a nutmeg. And I've watched him on shows and he puts in a whole nutmeg sometimes to things. And I've been doing that and it hasn't spoiled it at all. No. So something happens with nutmeg that it doesn't do the clove no, trick. Precisely. It's different. The nutmeg has that umami, I think, that really underlines the flavor as well. Because we have all these sauces that's white with the cabbage. They are the nutmeg is what lifts it up. That is like the the thing that will make it really, really delicious. I love nutmeg. Would you serve um, a cabbage with cabbage with the roast chicken dish? Yeah, I would steam cabbage and serve it on a side dish, and then I will just take a grater and grate nutmeg freshly over the cabbage. What sort of cabbages do you have? Lots of different sorts of cabbage. Then yeah, we have. You the, mentioned the cavallonero and the white cabbage. We have white. We have two kinds of white cabbage. We have the which is over here called spring cabbage or pointed cabbage. Yeah. And we have that both in white and red. Yeah. And the white, the red is a newer breed, you could say, or, you know, a variation. The 
the white one used to only come in the spring. I don't know what, what happens now. They kind of grow more of it, so it's all over, which is a bit of a shame because I really love seasonal things. But So spring, you have the pointed cabbage, and then when you go into summer, it becomes a white cabbage. And then in the winter, you're more into red cabbage and Brussels sprouts. And then, of course, there's cauliflower, and then there's a red kale and a green kale, and then the cavolo di nero, which we call either palm cabbage or black cabbage. And all of them are used in a lot of different ways. We used to, uh, the kale used to be always served in a white sauce with a bit of vinegar and sugar and nutmeg, but really boiled to pieces. And for a lot of years, I was told that's the only way you could actually eat kale. But we found out, like, you know, all of us 20 years ago, that kale was amazing and we could use it in so many. But it is a winter thing. And, and the difference you could say if we talk about what is it that has happened to the to the Scandinavian cuisine is that my mom would boil everything to pieces, more or less, not, not the summer things. And then she would put most of it into a sauce. Whereas today we treat the cabbage in so many different ways, both from raw to cooked to baked to, as I said before, steaming. You know, there's so many possibilities. And that is the modernization, you can say, we don't have to boil all the vegetables, so they are so soft. We can treat them in so many different ways. Yes, they're interesting yes. along the journey, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. I think there's a point, that personally, that with a vegetable, that if you cook it for generally the smaller things or slightest things, about five minutes, it starts to get sweet. Yeah. And there's a, a sudden a miracle moment where it gets yeah. sweet. But before that, it's also doing interesting things. Yeah. And after it, it's doing different things. And the French can boil their, some things, their beans, they can boil them for two hours and turn them into something completely different. Yeah. So I'm sure you've got all these things in yes. your repertoire <laughs> yes. in, in Denmark. I want to ask you some quick fire questions, which um, you don't have to think about. You can, they're off the top of your head, your most well-thumbed cookery book. That would be a Danish one called Frøken Jensen's Kobo, which is like the basic cookbook about Danish cooking. How does that translate? Uh, Miss Jensen's cookbook. Isn't there something called Janssen's Temptation? Is that a dish? That's a Swedish dish, yes. Ah, sweet. So it's not related to this no, cookbook. that's potatoes, cream and anchovies. We have the dictionary of Scandinavian <laughs> food here. <laughs> what music do you cook to? You know, I was young in the 90s, so I really love Portishead. And um, I've actually just uh, bought some of my old CDs as records. So I'm playing it in the kitchen now. I've got a record player. Actual vinyl? Yes. I love vinyl. Yeah. That scratchy sound, yeah. isn't so, it? Wonderful. Yeah. A great cheap eats restaurant or pub or market for a kind of inexpensive meal. That could be anywhere in the world that you'd like that to be. Wow. But I would mention something in Copenhagen. I have a open sandwiches place where you go and eat the smørbrød, which has been in Copenhagen, I think, more than 100 years, called Gitte Kik. It's really old-fashioned. You eat two pieces Giddy of... kick. Giddy kick. You eat two pieces of smørbrød and then you have a cold beer and an aquavit. Can polish that off now. Something that's always in your fridge. Blackcurrant jam. Excellent. Now confessions time. Your biggest cooking disaster. Yeah, I got a few of those. But the <laughs> biggest one is I won, did a vegetable terrine for 300 people that wasn't set. Right, so it was more like a vegetable, like gel, or yeah, soft gel with some. I can't even describe it for you. <laughs> vegetables bobbing round in it. Yeah, I once did a tomato aspic that didn't set. Yeah, that was hair raising. Yes. <laughs> Food you've never tried. It must be some box because I tried 
so many different things. Anything that you avoid then? I'll oh, yeah. You off. Have you heard of Surströmning in Sweden? That's not the shark thing, where no, they bury the shark. It's like a rotten fish in a tin. Right. That I've sounds tried, like the buried shark. Okay, I tried it once. It's, it's the most horrific thing ever. I'm never <laughs> going to do that again. But I'm glad I tried it, because then I can say I did it. That's the only thing. Um, your guilty pleasure? Wine gums. Really? I uh, love wine gums. But British I don't wine eat... gums? Or, oh, yeah. Or, yeah. Now, finally, uh, we like to end on... on an upbeat note, an optimistic note. What makes you optimistic for the future? Young people who are very interested in agriculture. You know, I I travel around not Europe and some of the globe, you can say, and I meet a lot of young people who are very interested in how they can grow food in a more sustainable and clean way. And they have amazing energy and amazing ideas. And I really believe they are they are the future. Trina Hanneman, thank you so much for sharing your favourite dish with us. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And uh, good luck with your future endeavours and and, uh, give my love to Copenhagen. Thank you, I will. 